0: Welcome to the Empowered Christian Woman Podcast. My name is Jeanette Cochran. I'm a pastor, women's leadership coach, and self-proclaimed Jesus feminist. I'm on a mission to inspire and equip women everywhere to own our voice, speak up, create, and lead wherever God calls. Because when women rise, everyone wins. Hello, friends. If you're listening to this the week that it airs, I want to say Merry Christmas. And if you happen to be listening at another time of the year, please don't check out because though today I have a Christmas episode for you, one that will inspire and bless you. It is sure to also bless and inspire any time of the year. It's appropriate for any time of the year. But this week, Specifically, right before Christmas, we're going to explore the untold stories and oft-overlooked women of the Advent. Today is a conversation with a good friend and member of my congregation. Her name is Jill Lynn. She's an extraordinary teacher and a passionate follower of Jesus. Our conversation delves into the remarkable and essential role that women play in the Advent narratives of the Bible. We're going to look specifically at Mary, Elizabeth, and Anna, because we notice that so often when we hear messages about the Christmas story, more of the men are mentioned, the shepherds, the wise men, Joseph, with just a little bit of Mary's role. Today, we're going to peel back the layers to unveil the courage, faith, and purpose of these remarkable women. God meets them where they are. He calls them for a unique purpose, and he includes them as indispensable participants in his mission to transform the world. And God still does that for women today. Sister, God wants to do that in your life. He's doing that in my life God has a role and a plan and a purpose for all women. So I hope you'll listen in as we rediscover the strength, resilience, and pivotal roles that these amazing women played. Here's my conversation with Jill Lynn. Welcome to the podcast, Jill. I'm so glad that you're joining me today. You and I have had lots of conversations about women's equality and how women are viewed in the Bible. You've done writing for CBE International and most recently are teaching a Bible study at our church. Thank you for your willingness to do this. I know it's probably a little bit out of your comfort zone. You are a brilliant woman with lots of wisdom. And I'm always inspired by the way that you view the scripture and the way that you think deeply. So I thank you for your willingness to step out and be willing to share this conversation with others. Thanks for having me, Jeanette. Before we do, I do want to give you an opportunity just to share a little bit of your journey in Growing in your empowerment. This is the Empowered Christian Woman podcast where we are learning to see ourselves the way that God views us and questioning some of the Bible interpretations that we've been handed. What has been your experience in growing your in your understanding of what the Bible really has to say about women and your understanding of how God views women?
1: I think it was a topic that I became interested in in my teens. I think that's probably a typical age to start asking questions of what is it to be a a grown Christian woman now? And what does the Bible have to say about that? And it's been a, a long and slow journey. I would say I've never been in churches where I felt women were particularly squashed. There were always women teaching Bible studies, women deacons. The churches I grew up in did have male pastors. But it was not a strong, strongly patriarchal community by any stretch of the imagination. And then growing up in the UK, of course, in the 90s, women became ordained in the Anglican Church, and so that made the news. So that probably sparked a lot of my questions. What does the Bible say is the role in marriage and the church? And over time, that evolved, I think. It wasn't a sudden impact one way or another. But I kept asking those questions and wondering why in some churches women couldn't be pastors. I didn't feel called to be one. So on that level, it was more just, I want to know what God has to say about this. And it wasn't a huge stumbling block for me personally, but I knew it was for some others that I knew. I continued reading. And as you know, I joined the study that you led a few years back on what the Bible actually says are appropriate roles for women, and how women can indeed be called to all sorts of different paths, uh, including leadership in the church, and what equality within marriage looks like. And I think it's really just been a an evolving journey to realize that we are all equal in the sight of God. I don't think I ever got the impression that we weren't of equal worth, but that we have equal opportunities to be called to different roles and serve with all the gifts that God has blessed us with.
0: Tell us about your intrigue with the women of Advent. They get glossed over, particularly in evangelical circles. I think we shy away from Mary, and maybe that's because we don't always agree with our Catholic brothers and sisters. Evangelicals often claim that they elevate Mary to a position that she shouldn't be at. So there's just this this tension, I think, in evangelical circles with Mary that she does tend to get glossed over. Tell us about what has intrigued you about Mary and what are some of the things that you have learned in your study of Mary that maybe are missed or that people don't even recognize about the incredible role that she played and what it would have been like for her as a first century teenage girl.
1: I think you're right that in Protestant circles, we do kind of bring her out for the nativity and then pack her away again for the rest of the year. And she tends to be Mary Meek and Mild, a, a silent witness, a little statuette, maybe a young girl on the stage playing in a children's nativity pageant, but we don't go into her life too much. And I think I became more aware of Mary when I did spend some time attending a Catholic church church. When and during the period I lived in Bavaria, which started raising interesting questions about, well, who is she and why is she important? And have we missed anything? And last year, in particular, as I was packing away my Christmas decorations, and I started thinking, you know, every time there's a pageant, we try to find parts for the girls. And it's Mary or not much else. So perhaps we should take a look at these women and, and really see what they did and What Mary did, that she wasn't just silently riding a donkey. So, as I delved into Mary's story, I found that Mary was tremendously bold. She was remarkably courageous. And it struck me that just like we have at the tomb, we have the women who discover first the resurrection of Jesus. While, interestingly, they're about the very womanly work of dealing with the corpse, right? Here at the other end of his life, We also have three women who are named, and they're the first ones who know that he's coming. And Mary is the first of all. Mary is the one who gets that revelation that Jesus is going to be born, which sounds obvious. She's the mom. That is a tremendous idea that it's this young girl in Galilee of all places in Nazareth, which always makes me think of when Nathaniel turns to Philip and says, can anything good come from Nazareth? right? But it's a girl from Nazareth who gets picked, and she receives the announcement, you're going to have the Son of God. His name will be Jesus. He's going to inherit the throne of David. She's getting all of this revelation. And here she is doing something both fundamentally traditionally female, bearing a child, and also something very unusual in that The revelation is going straight to her. It's not coming through a male intermediary. Gabriel shows up in the Holy of Holies to Zechariah, but he shows up with Mary in her everyday life. The angel comes directly to her, and she's expected to give her answer. She's not expected to run off and consult with her father or her fiancé. She's expected to answer Gabriel. So I think the fact this revelation is coming to a girl, that she's expected to accept this call and say yes to this call— That feels very untraditional, especially if you followed that logic of needing to be under the covering of a male, of needing to be under the umbrella imagery or or whatever else your tradition has used. So I think from the get-go, Mary's being courageous and brave and stepping outside of cultural norms, even while doing something that we think of as archetypally female, right? Having a baby.
0: Yeah. She receives the call and she receives it with joy and says okay let it be just let right. it be done which we can miss the fact that as about probably a 14 15 year old unmarried girl would mean death for her right but says that she receives it with faith and she's like okay let it let your will be done to me which right. uh, as as you pointed out with Zechariah He's like, how can this be? He questions it and she receives it with faith, even though it really would have messed up her life and her plans probably. Right. And as
1: you pointed out, some translations will, it, it sounds almost like Zachariah and Mary ask the same question. And in some translations they do. And in others, as you pointed out, Zachariah's words are more like, well, how can this be? And she asks, how will this be? And I thought it was interesting in Amy Peeler's book, The Gender of God, she suggests that that question is rooted in faith. It's not a doubtful question. And that it might even indicate that she's already realizing there's something special about this birth. Because if you show up to a girl who's engaged and say, you're going to have a baby, normally the first reaction would be, well, sure, I hope so, as soon as I get married and you know, God willing, within however many months or years, we'll have a first son and all the rest of it. She's obviously clued into the fact this is not going to be a normal pregnancy, Mm -hmm. but she is asking in faith. And I think in response to that, Gabriel is obviously doesn't strike her dumb or, or give her a consequence for daring to ask, but actually gives her information and even gives her evidence that she's not asking for by giving her evidence of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So I think there there is this sense that her questions are thoughtful, they're not doubtful, and she is willing to take whatever consequences this brings. Um and the the minimum she was going to get was ostracized for this because people could count the months. Yes. Even even when Joseph goes through with it there's there's definitely going to be talk and and some would interpret The reference to Jesus as Mary's son later, and I think it's Mark's Gospel, as potentially a slur on his paternity. Mm -hmm. You know, oh yeah, that's Mary's son. Mm -hmm. So, but be that as it may, people knew, right? They they knew this baby showed up too early, because she leaves for three months and then comes back. We don't know exactly when they get married, but clearly this would have looked too short of a pregnancy.
0: Yeah. And so then Mary goes to Elizabeth, which is also another miraculous birth and God showing up to women in women's spaces. Tell us okay. what you've learned about Elizabeth and the role that she plays.
1: Right. Well, I think as it, as Mary was the first to know Jesus was coming at all and gets the announcement, Elizabeth the first one to declare that Jesus is Lord. So after Mary makes this arduous and very courageous trek, it's no small feat to go from Nazareth to Judea to go visit Elizabeth. She reaches her and Elizabeth greets her with the, the now commonly known words Who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And she proceeds this with Blessed are you amongst women, blessed is the fruit of your womb. Elizabeth is announcing that Jesus is Lord. I mean, it has echoes of later when Mary is known as the mother of God. And this speaks to who this child is going to be. And I think for Mary is a huge affirmation of what the angel has told her. Again, although it was Zechariah who received the annunciation, if you will, of John's birth, here we read that Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. This revelation comes directly to Elizabeth. And we see her using the term Kyrios, which is translated Lord for Jesus. It's also translated in the Septuagint to refer to the name of God when it's translated into the Greek. So we're getting this sense that this child is incredibly important, some form of ruler, or something of the divine about him, between the angel's announcement and then what Elizabeth is saying here. If Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is curious, a term which is also used for political leaders, for Caesar, as is the term son of God, then it's making us question where our allegiance lies. Who is our Lord? I mean, we are so used to this phrase now in church, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus. And, you know, Elizabeth's words are recited in Catholic Mass all the time. They don't sound nearly as radical to us as they would have then. This is a declaration about the unborn fetus of a peasant girl from Galilee. It seems a little incredible, and yet through the spirit's revelation, directly to Elizabeth, she's declaring he's the one. He is the ruler, theologically, politically, on on all levels. And so we have to ask ourselves then: Well, where does our allegiance lie, right? If Jesus is Lord then our allegiance to him comes before our allegiance to family, to our church, to our community, to our ethnic groups, to our nations. And that is radical today.
0: Absolutely. It actually is mind-blowing when we stop and think about for thousands of years, they're waiting for the Savior. And God is moving, and it's already happening. He's already at work. And the only people at this point that know are these two women. These two women are together in their private place. They are declaring the incredible work of God before the rest of humanity knows. Now, Zachariah has been clued in that something's happening. but So in the temple where the angel comes and is trying to proclaim, hey, God's, God's moving, what you've been waiting for is going to happen. It's met with a lack of faith. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way. It's just the reality. The right. priest, the one that we would expect that would be the holier one, the one closer to God meets it with a lack of faith. And yet these two women, and you point out who are of lower status, they know that God is on the move before the rest of humanity does. And they're together worshiping and receiving it. How miraculous that is, because we still live in a day today where women are shut out of church elder boards. Women are not allowed to be in the rooms when decisions are made for congregations. Women are um, oftentimes not allowed to have a final, so to speak, I'm doing this in air quotes, final voice in major decisions that are made in, in their marriages, And yet here, God is moving in humanity to bring about the promised Messiah, the salvation of the world, and he comes to the two women and he says, let me bring you in on this. Let me tell you what's happening here. And they're the only ones to hold at this point the the secrets of God. How miraculous that is.
1: Right. I mean, his his arrival isn't being proclaimed at the temple gates. It's being proclaimed in this little local mom's, group. mom's right?
0: group. I love that. And
1: and so I think throughout the narratives of these women, we see God is working in women's spaces over and over again. And obviously he works in men's spaces too. This is not to pit the one against the other. But it is to say that he is already there doing what Mary is going to reference immediately after this greeting in her Magnificat, which is he's lifting up the humble. He's turning things the other way around. He's bringing he's scattering the proud. And that is going to be a hallmark of Jesus throughout his ministry. And we're seeing it begin right here. And so whether whether we as women currently have a seat at the table or don't, God is still at work among us and he is still calling us and offering revelation to us just as he did to them. And yes, they are receiving this, irrespective of whether their menfolk understand yet or not. And it's even Elizabeth who speaks up and says, his name's going to be John. And yes, they go and check with her husband afterwards, but she speaks. And she proclaims this understanding of Jesus'
0: Lord loudly. They're not being silenced here. They're not being silenced. They're being given voice by God, by the Holy Spirit. They're boldly speaking it out. Right. I, I just get this sense, as you do, of them. They're so excited. They're both going to have children, especially Elizabeth, who's waited so long. Infertility is so painful. And here is this woman who has been infertile, and probably her community and their beliefs about what infertility meant have probably caused her a lot of shame and a lot of pain. And so God has taken that away. And Mary is there excited with what she understands her role is going to be. So I I just imagine them just being almost giddy with joy and hearts that are worshiping, thinking, I can't believe God chose me. Then Mary speaks out by the Holy Spirit and starts to prophesy who Jesus will be and what he is here to do. And so what are your thoughts on that, on on Mary's response?
1: I think... You can break the Magnificat almost in half between her response to what this means for her and her hopes for what this means for everyone else. And so I think in the first half, what's amazing is that she feels so much joy and hope in this, because as we've already said, she is risking her life. And so far, as far as we know, Joseph doesn't even know yet, right? It, it Luke implies she hurries off to Elizabeth, So who knows whether Joseph's got word, and she's definitely not showing yet anyway before she left. So everything is still uncertain for her. And yet she has this very hopeful, joyful response that God has blessed her already. And she's agreeing with Elizabeth that future generations are going to call her blessed, But the very name Magnificat comes from the Latin, from the the first verse of this song, right? My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And I think for her to be able to do that, she really is trusting that God's going to fulfill this promise. That at the very least, she's going to live long enough to birth this son. And I think ultimately that she realizes that God's favor matters far more than anybody's opinion of her. And perhaps with the sense of what her son is going to do and what it's going to mean for everybody else, she realizes that in the long run, people will see that I've been honored with this call, even though in the short run, this is going to bring an awful lot of dishonor to her. So I think then we move to the second half when she talks about what her son is going to do and what she's expecting. And what struck me as I was reading it and. I used to hear this song every week. In my college, we had even sung once a week and the Magnificat was sung every single Tuesday evening. And what struck me as I was rereading it again, which I I love the fact that every time you come back to a scripture, you, you see more in it than you've seen before, is how Mary's song was, yes, it echoes Hannah. It also foreshadows how Jesus starts his ministry, right? She's talking about, the humble being lifted, the rulers coming down from their thrones, the hungry are going to be filled, right? Not just we'll give them enough to get by, but there's this sense of abundance coming. The rich are sent away empty. He's fulfilling these promises to Israel, to Abraham, and so on. And then we turn a couple of chapters later, and Jesus opens the book of Isaiah. And he reads from Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, release the oppressed, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's just such a foreshadowing of this passage that he chooses to open his ministry, that he is starting a kingdom that's going to look very different. He is going to bring justice where there's injustice. He's going to bring shalom, a sense of well-being, And she has this hopefulness for herself and her people, right? She is included in lifting up the humble. She's already referenced herself as him being mindful of her humble state, her her humble servanthood. But I think this joy of what her son is going to do and the fact she clearly has a sense of what his ministry will be about. Mm -hmm. So for those of us that think Mary was perhaps a little ignorant of what's going on, I think she shows she's anything but she is well aware and very hopeful. At the same time, I would say it's probably a stretch to assume she is fully on board and realizes that there's a triune God and that he's going to die and rise again and that all of that has yet to be revealed and unfold. She knows he's going to have this radical ministry, that he's going to be the son of God with all the various facets that may entail, that he is going to be truly human, he's going to be somehow divine. He's going to inherit the throne of David. He's not going to be less than she thinks, but he is going to be more than she thinks, than that she dares dream of at this point. But I just, I love how hopeful she is of all of these things that are coming through him, in spite of the fact that in the beginning, she is probably going to be somewhat disgraced and 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 suffer somewhat, and she knows she's going to suffer, yes. but again, she doesn't know yet all of how. And and Simeon's going to clue her in a little bit more on that. You know, I don't think any new mom wants to hear. Oh, by the way, a sword's going to pierce your own side too. <laughs> like yeah. that's that's not the line you want right after. What a cute baby. It, it's going to unfold, and I think that's true for all of us as we come to faith in God that we know, but we don't know as much as we will know later. Right. We're going to grow in knowledge. And and Mary does that. So I think she straddles this beautiful balance between proclaiming what she knows and having the open mind to learn more. And that's what I read in the verse where after the shepherds leave, that Mary treasures these things and ponders them in her heart. She is reflecting. And when we reflect and we ponder the word of God, we, we grow in insight, we grow to know him better. We see a little bit more of what he's doing. And we can get on board with it. Whereas if we have made too much of a sure conclusion too early, then we will cease growing. And and I think that we could do a lot to emulate Mary in that.
0: Yes, holding even our convictions and our desires lightly because Mm -hmm. God gives us just enough that we need, I think, in the moment to move in the direction that he's calling us to, but you're right. So often we, we can't see it all and, and we wouldn't want to see it all. I mean, at that point, from our human perspective, Mary probably couldn't have handled all of the truth to know that Jesus would be crucified and that she would go through that. And so by God's grace, he doesn't reveal that until there is provision there and grace there for you to handle what must happen. Because God is able to work even through the the deepest suffering to bring out his good, to bring out good for us. And I think the cross actually is probably the place in human history that demonstrates that the most, that when there was the greatest human evil from that moment, the most beautiful, loving revelation of God became crystal clear in our greatest evil done against God. And so, Yeah, he gives us just what we need at the moment. And I love the way that you have presented that and the way you help us to see Mary from a a very human perspective because so often we do just see her as that little figure like, oh yeah, that's Mary, this is what happened. And you know, she rode the donkey, she had the baby in the stable. And yet when we stop and and ponder it from what life was like there, and this was a real woman, actually, a teenage girl, It's marvelous, the strength that she had. It's amazing, her life and her legacy and what we can learn from it. I also like what you said about by taking on God's call for her life in the culture, she was dishonored. She was certainly talked about, probably, and gossiped about. and I'm sure she was shunned in communities for at least a time. And yet, God was honoring her. That very dichotomy, and how sometimes God calls us to do things that in the world, in our communities, others will look down on us for it. And yet God is honoring us and blessing us and elevating us.
1: Right. And especially if we do feel called into a role that perhaps not everybody is supporting, which, if you are a woman being called into positions of leadership, you may very well find that challenge from certain quarters. Even in the secular world, it's still somewhat taboo if the wife makes more than the husband, right? It doesn't sit quite comfortably with us. But certainly in, in the church communities, there can still be a challenge for women taking on certain forms of leadership, but in other areas too, right? Why is God asking you to take this pay cut to go do that work? Why is God asking you to leave this job or have another child or fill in the blank of whatever you feel called to do that your community is looking at you saying, that doesn't make any sense. Or I think that's a really bad idea. And Mary is demonstrating for us that when God calls, we can say yes, because the only permission we need is from God and he is our only judge. So whatever that path may be for any given woman or man, we are called to follow him. And I think that's where Mary is most blessed, right? It's not specifically that her call was through motherhood. It's that she was saying yes to God and that will make any one of us blessed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think her, her disgrace we see follows her, if you will, or her lowly positioning in society, not just through having this child that would have been known to be illegitimate But she also ends up a migrant mother. She ends up having to flee for her son's safety. And then eventually she's going to watch her son suffer an unjust trial and be crucified, which is a remarkably painful and humiliating death. Hmm. And so in today's world, who are the mothers of the executed? Who are the immigrant moms? Who are the women who are struggling because their family can only afford the the two doves at the temple and not the full lamb for the sacrifice, who are struggling paycheck to paycheck. All of those things Mary's going to identify with. And so I think that's where it's powerful when she talks about God lifting up the humble because, again, she's the one who's chosen to bring the Lord into the world. And what struck me in my reading before putting together the study that I'm teaching at church was it had to be a woman. A man could not bear the Son of God. And even in bearing a child, there's still maternal imagery of God giving birth to Israel in the Old Testament. So we still see Mary being fully imago Dei in giving birth. But the fact that Jesus is human and fully understands a human life needed for him to be born. You know, he didn't just show up as a mysterious foundling. You know, he's not a character in Highlander. You know, he didn't come full grown and say, here I am, just walked out of the desert today. Right? This is where he takes on human flesh and becomes incarnate. And to do that, he needs to start off as a human embryo and be given birth. And I think that is phenomenal to think that, no, I would not say she's a co-redemptrix, but she is being called to that level of crucial role. So if we think women have to do the peripheral work of the church, I think we also need to take another look at what Mary is called to here.
0: Yeah. And how do you think that honors women and our bodies today? I think certainly
1: it honors women's bodies, because I would say that gynecological issues are still somewhat taboo, even in our modern forward-thinking world, right? And birth, if anything, has become somewhat more sanitized because it's off in the hospital. So no one has to really witness it anymore. In his own day and age, giving birth made a woman ritually unclean as did menstruation. And I think the fact that Jesus enters the world through that uncleanness, through that messiness, it honors women's bodies at a time when an understanding there are different interpretations of ritually unclean. It's not the same thing as sinful. And there are many interpretations of what, what it means and the rituals involved. But I think at a time when the ritual uncleanness meant that Mary could not have entered the temple we see jesus entering mary
0: Mm.
1: right and he refers to himself as the temple right when he's talking about i can tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days and i think that imagery of of jesus actually being there with us in our uncleanness in our most messy state. And and that I think applies to to both genders, but specifically for women, the idea that a woman's body is what was needed to bring in the King of Kings elevates in my mind the reality of female bodies and the process of birth. Which is not to say that Jesus then turns around and says, well then the ultimate goal is to be a mother. Right. You can no, elevating right? one thing does not mean lowering another calling, right? So we see him throughout his life and then his ministry and and subsequently in the church that women are called to all sorts of roles. They're called to finance his ministry. They're called to proclaim his resurrection. So we see women clearly being valued for other roles as well. But I do think it is telling that that role of of birth and motherhood does get an elevation here in a world that often somewhat disparages it, right? What's that gap on your resume? What, you need another day off to stay home with the sick kids? Yeah. We don't offer a lot of care for prenatal, postnatal women and support. And I think by being willing to be born, Jesus emphasizes that these women are I guess, important. Yeah. That, that this is important too. This is essential too. And not to disparage it, but but to be supportive. And I think throughout this, you know, one of those elements that, that came across in the stories between the three women is that we can, as women, support each other's callings,
0: mm.
1: whatever those are. My calling may not be yes. your calling. Your calling is not someone else's calling. But we can support each other in those callings, the way Elizabeth is supporting Mary. And then we see Anna comes along eventually towards the end of the Nativity story, and she gets a very brief mention, but she's the first named evangelist. She's the first one who is named. The shepherds go off and tell everyone what they've seen. We don't know who they are. The first one who is named is Anna, who goes and tells everyone who's looking for the redemption of Jerusalem that this child is here she's a widow. She's either 84 years old or she's been widowed 84 years, but she was only married for seven. So she's definitely been widowed for decades. She may very well not have children. Her children are not part of her role that she's being mentioned for in the Bible at any rate. And, and we know that widows are, are another particularly marginalized, vulnerable group in society. And yet she is called to go and tell. So yeah. we don't need to, to elevate one particular role for women over another but to actually acknowledge the fact that all of these roles are to be elevated and and valued and encouraged.
0: I love that. And that's one of the reasons that I love Jesus so much is that when we look closely and we really understand the context and what life was like there, it's hard to argue that God was not elevating women from the status that they held that day and including women from the very beginning. Before the birth of Jesus, it's the women that are proclaiming he's going to be Lord. And then mm-hmm. as we know, at the book end at his death and resurrection, it is the women that are first given the news and told to proclaim that Jesus is risen, that Jesus is Lord. And I think that is because that's the place where I think God is trying to rewrite the way that men and women have worked together. And so it's sad to me that still today it's an argument that has to be made in so many churches that women have to argue from scripture in order to be able to have a voice and to be able to follow their calling and to be a full partner and full participant. And Jesus died for that, He was born that because he came for sinful humanity to bring us back together, to right the wrongs, to to feed the hungry, to proclaim release for the prisoners. This is what the mission of Jesus was. And so right. um, I know you, like me, are passionate about all of it, and it includes making sure that our brothers and sisters are serving together side by side, that the image of God that is both male and female, and you've so beautifully articulated here through the female role, right, and through the female body,
1: right, and yeah. in that, indeed, that side by side, do we not see that in Simeon and Anna at the temple? <sighs> yeah, I mean, they they both show up in the same moment to bear witness to him to prophesy. She is named a prophet. Simeon prophesies, and then she evangelizes. Yes, so we see that right from the beginning, and and we see Jesus elevating women and bringing honor to women in a society that put them lower down on the honor-shame scale. And, And each time he's doing it, whether he's doing it within their lives, like with Elizabeth, when she finally gets the honor of bearing a son, it's a foretaste of the fact, as Mary is so hopeful for, that honor is coming to everybody eventually through his ministry And though she may not realize it quite yet, through what he's done on the cross, right? Through what he's done on the cross, we can all have the favor of God, Hmm. right? None of these women have merited it per se. Though I do love the fact that for Elizabeth, even before she gets to be pregnant with John, we are told that she and her husband are blameless. And it's not because they haven't sinned ever anywhere, it's because they are no more. Deserving of this barrenness than the next person, right? We don't earn infertility and we don't earn fertility. But I love that he points that out because he's bringing honor by clearing her name, irrespective of whether she gets the honor of bearing the child. You know, that we're reminded not to slander someone else's path or assume we can judge them. And on so many levels, we see him raising up Elizabeth, letting her see honor in her society, but telling us whether she gets that honor or not. She's not barren for dishonorable reasons. We see him honoring Mary and giving her this crucial role in bringing his son into the world. Without her doing that, Christmas doesn't happen. Some young girl has to do that. Again, it's grace. It's favor. It's not because she's merited it. And so she is receiving this honor from God, and she is aware that it's going to be longer and more eternal than any temporary dishonors or disgraces. And even with Anna, I mean, she's been at the temple for decades praying for this faithfully. I almost feel like she looks like the prototype of a nun, you know, Mm -hmm. that she's living this contemplative life,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and you're never too old to get called. She's either eighty-four or, arguably, some would say, just past a hundred. And she gets the honor of her words matter in a world. I mean, all of these women, their words are mattering in a world where they couldn't even bear witness in co- court. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Right. And yet, their presence is so important to this story, and their words matter so much. What they say, what they bear witness to. Is tremendous for our understanding of the nativity and what Jesus came to do. Mm. And if that's not Jesus bringing honor to women, I don't know what is.
0: Amen. Absolutely. Well, Jill, this has been fantastic. I appreciate the way that you have shown us through these women that get overlooked that there's so much here. And we could go on and talking, I think, for at least another hour and find some other really fascinating things to look at here. But in the end, I think it does show that just like the angel came to Mary and said, you have found favor with God. Overall, what I hope our listeners will take away, particularly our female listeners, is that they have found favor with God. That is the proclamation of God to all women that we are created in His image, that we are necessary, we are essential to the work of God. So I hope they'll take that away from this conversation today in seeing these three women that you have really uncovered for us in new ways. So thank you for that. Any closing words for listeners? I think having
1: looked at these women and their witness, just remembering that no matter what your Christmas looks like and no matter what your situation in life is right now. The celebration is wonderful, and I love the festivities as much as the next person, but this is a beautiful season to remember that light came into darkness, that he did come into this messy world, into our messy places, that he meets us where we are, not just in the temple, but in our homes, in the stressful, frenzied wrapping, in the sad tears of missing someone who's not there, in wishing things could be different, or in the joyful moments of wasn't this a perfect day, that he's there in all of it, that he really is Emmanuel, and he came to be that to women and to men. And I hope that's something our listeners can really experience this Christmas and know that he came to bring favor and grace to us all.
0: Amen. And so well said. Merry Christmas.
1: Merry Christmas.
0: Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Empowered Christian Woman Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it with other women in your network. For more information about me and the work that I do, check out JeanetteCochran.com. And I'd love to hear from you personally. Come join the conversation on social. You can find me on Facebook at J Cochran Coach or Instagram at Jeanette.Cochran.